29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles. He sat at his right hand. His own eyes saw Jesus transfigured. The very heart of Christ was poured out to him, and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. Well, one of the hardest things I found to get used to when I started to succeed in the business space, and it took me a while to start to succeed, I'll be honest, I didn't succeed right away. It took, I'm a slow starter, but I did ultimately start to succeed in business. But one of the things I found difficult was trying to determine who are your friends and who are the people using you for access to your network and your capital. That was one of the hard parts about succeeding, and it's been particularly difficult with Christian nonprofits. I actually think there's been a class or a book written on fundraising that many of the nonprofits teach to their people. The opening lines all sound the same when they would approach me. Boy, I'd love to get to know you and see how I could pray for you and your family. And I was always like, boy, there appears to be a genuine interest in wanting to be my friend and spend time with me. But once I made a donation, I would really only get a quarterly visit or what was one, what I would call a monthly maintenance call to help the relationship. I never doubted those folks' loves for Jesus, but I can tell you I would certainly doubted their affection and desire to be a friend of mine. That was hard for me. Jesus felt this in exactly the same way in tonight's story, but in a much higher way. The vast majority of people pursuing him had no desire at all to have a deep relationship with him. They were only pursuing the benefits of knowing Jesus. And in fact, in John 6, Jesus is making a profound move to separate those who believe in him from those who act as though they believe in him. He does this by leading them on a long journey around a lake, much like Moses led the Israelites on a long journey through a desert. Jesus gets them hungry and tired, feeds them, and then compares belief in him to eating and drinking. And most of the people abandon Jesus after two days of traveling and some very difficult teaching. This chapter is challenging in that it presents an opportunity for each of us to look deeply and honestly at ourselves tonight and ask, are you a true believer or not? It's also a strong exposition to see how Jesus affirms believers and helps us see how true believers benefit from total surrender to Jesus. So I would ask you, I'm, I'm gonna be fairly direct, I'm gonna be fairly pointed tonight, these statements aren't comprehensive. They're just examples of ways that we behave in both of these ways. Please hear them that way. Let's pray one more time and ask the Spirit to join us. This is going to be challenging material. Heavenly Father, help us hear your voice. Lord, let us listen and not be critical. Help us hear you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. In John 6, 1 through 15, we see Jesus feed 5,000 men. And we know it was a lot more people than that, but there were 5,000 hungry men. I don't know about you, but that's a mean crowd. Jesus asked Philip and Andrew how to feed so many people, and they had absolutely no idea. You know, when you go to work for Jesus, he forces you to depend on him. And at the same time, he lets you see him do miracles. And this is one of the great joys you feel if you are a true believer. This is one of the hallmarks of a true believer. One key here is they were doing the work, they weren't watching. 
If you aren't serving in any way, you never participate in the miracles, and you often wonder, am I saved? I've been working with men for a lot of years, you guys, and I've seen numerous men's lives dramatically changed, and it makes me feel really good when I'm a part of that. It gives me a deep sense of happiness I don't get anywhere else. And if you're one of those guys that splits hairs on joy and happiness, you need to read Randy Alcorn's book on happiness because Randy says happiness and joy are the same thing. So if I interchange happiness and joy, allow me to do that, all right? Because I truly believe happiness is a great thing and serving other men makes you happy. Isaiah 58.10 says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and the oppressed, your night will become like noonday. This is the Bible telling us that when you serve other men, other people who are broken and struggling, it brings you joy. It makes you happy. So let me ask you, what kingdom work would you be willing to step into right now that maybe you're avoiding? And let me encourage you to sign up for homework. If you're not doing anything, and this is a shameless pitch, I know it, but let me ask you, if you're not doing anything, why wouldn't you sign up for homework? Because this is a great place for you to get shoulder to shoulder with other men and to get shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and experience some of this joy I'm talking about. This is exactly what he's describing in this story. Guys working with him, experiencing his power and his presence in the lives of many, and it's moving them. After feeding the huge crowd, Jesus tells his 12 disciples to pick up 12 baskets of leftovers. And yes, this is a point that says, hey, there's 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus is going to restore them at some time. And yes, it's a reflection on that. I think there's something more practical going on. Those 12 men were working hard and no doubt it's late and they're getting doggone hungry as well. You know, for me at times when I'm serving, I start to get into a bit of a pity party feeling sorry for myself because I don't have what other people have, sometimes even what I'm giving them. And in fact, I could tell you, in the summer comes, I get jealous when I see guys that are golfing and I'm here serving in heart of a man. That's just being real, sorry. But it's funny, every time I have that experience, I start getting bitter, I get jealous, I'm like, doggone, I wish it was golf and I can't believe I'm writing this stupid lecture. God's like, just wait. And sure enough, there'll, become a, there'll come a time, and it's always amazingly good and always amazingly better, and it's always with some guys that I didn't anticipate God would bring, and I have an absolute blast. And it's way better than what I was gonna do when I went off to play whenever I was gonna go. And it taught me, and it has taught me, that I can trust in God in these situations. I think the key here is that Jesus provides everything we need in surplus when we obediently serve him. And this is, a, this is a really deep blessing, guys. When you're saying, I wanna serve God, but I'm scared I'm gonna give up something, this story says, oh no. Man, when you go serve, you get more than what you thought you would get. He gave them each a basket full of food. They didn't just get a little of the food, they got a whole basket full of food. That's how God treats the people that work for him. He abundantly blesses them. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, the pagans chase after food and clothes. Your Father in heaven knows you need those. So seek his kingdom first and his righteousness and all those things, they're gonna be given to you. Stop worrying about that. So what is Jesus asking you to do that you're avoiding because you think you'll have to sacrifice something that you absolutely love? 
In John 6, 16 through 24, Jesus sent his disciples onto the lake ahead of him. He needed time alone, and he needed to be away from the demanding crowd, including his disciples. The disciples were probably filled with doubt about his identity. They're listening to this crowd, and they agree with the crowd. They think he ought to be king. They're, they're close to Jesus. They're like, we're in the inner circle. He becomes king. We're going to be in a good spot here. And Jesus does something quite contrary. He sends them out on the lake by themselves, probably knowing a storm is coming, sends them off and leaves them in a dangerous place. Jesus knew this would be an ideal way to show them his true identity and his power. They would be vulnerable, afraid, and they would be ready to believe in that situation. Jesus needed these men to be his most trusted and most valuable followers, and they had to believe in him. And Peter not only saw this power, he was given an opportunity to feel that power as he walked on water, started to drown, and then got pulled back up. He felt the power. That power went through him. In his own experience, it was powerful. Men who obediently follow Jesus will see his power, and they get to use that power to do miracles of their own. My first first trip to East Africa, I landed in Uganda at 10 p.m., I was scared to death because I didn't have a ride to the hotel and I was alone and I had no idea who was supposed to pick me up. I can honestly say that fear was so overwhelming. When I safely landed at the hotel, I felt as though God had done a miracle. I was literally standing at the hotel counter shaking and feeling like I had just been saved from true death. Now, of course, you're laughing and saying, come on, that's a joke. And I'm, it didn't feel that way to me, you guys. I was scared to death. I jumped out of the boat to go to Uganda. I sank, and Jesus pulled me out of that fear. So I know this feeling Peter experienced firsthand, and you can have that same experience too. In John 14, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do and do even greater things than me. That's what he said, and he's like, I'm gonna give you that power. You're gonna go past where I went. That's power, and it will come through you, and he'll work through you. He promises that to those who follow him. So why are you staying on the shore or staying in the boat to play it safe? Why? Are you a believer that's afraid? Or are you a fake believer with no desire to even help anyone? Which one is it? In John 6, 25 through 42, after seeing Jesus heal many and now providing bread like Moses, the people wanted to make Jesus their king. They wanted him to overturn Rome and take back the kingdom. Jesus wanted to believe he's God, not an earthly king. They failed to see the signs of his identity. They only wanted to pursue that which met their immediate needs. This is hard, you guys. Many of us pursue Jesus for comfort comfort as well. It's easy to look at this story and say, wow, how could they do that? Listen to what he's saying here. We have no intention sometimes of, of submitting control of our life to Jesus. Some of us come to church I remember the early years of church for me, I had no intent of doing this. In Carmel, Indiana, guys, mostly wealthy communities like these, many Christians find the church network to be a place where affluent people hang out. And it's easy to move in those circles and be like everyone else because the lingo and the way it looks is similar to affluent circles inside and outside the church. Jesus provides a great network here and a community here. And after a while, You depend and connect, and all this stuff starts working for you, and pretty soon, do you really need Jesus? Or is that network working pretty well for you? 
For the people that are needing money, they come into these circles and they find the exact same thing. Lots of resources, lots of network, lots of people. All my needs get met here. And does Jesus really get needed at that point? In the American church, it's easy to take what Jesus provides and ignore him. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will do great things in my name, but I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So how are you maintaining a solid Christian persona, and how are you using that persona to exploit Jesus inside your own church? In John 6, 49, or 43 through 59, Jesus reminds the people of the Passover lamb by describing the need to consume flesh and blood. At Passover, they ate the lamb and spread his blood to avoid death. Eating flesh and drinking blood is a metaphor in this story, a metaphor that compares a physical reality to a spiritual reality. Jesus equates eating and drinking to believing. So if you see that, go back and look at the story and you'll see the metaphor clearly. He's comparing eating and drinking to believing. It's a metaphor. Jesus is not saying they literally need to eat his flesh and blood. There are churches, very large churches, filled with millions of people all over the world that have read these words and said it's literal and that this is what happens when they have bread and wine. He didn't say that. In verse 33, Jesus states clearly, the flesh counts for nothing. The spirit gives life. He states that as plain as day. Like food and water carry molecules that enter our bloodstream, providing vital nutrients for us to live. Spiritual vitality comes by consuming the words of Jesus and letting them fill every ounce of your being as the Holy Spirit in you uses those words to transform you. This is what he's talking about. Jesus wants to saturate every part of our body, heart, mind, and soul with himself. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. If Jesus is the word of God and he says, I'm the bread of life, then those two say the word of God is also the bread of life. Wow. Because the Holy Spirit is living in you, if you're a believer, when you consume the word of God, we are infused with this power, this incredible power of wisdom and truth carried by the Holy Spirit through your body. Therefore, we don't need a new infusion of Jesus each week through a mystical chant over bread and grape juice. Did you know that what you think and feel directly impacts the hormones that are released into your body? Hormones, hormones control a large portion of your bodily functions like heart rate, sleep cycles, sexual functions, metabolism, appetite, cellular growth, mood, stress, and body temperature, just to name a few. If you give Jesus control of your heart and your mind, then your body that's producing hormones are being produced and being affected and being controlled under the authority of Jesus. That's different. And that changes how you act every single day. Jesus said, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. So do it. At every single meal, remember Jesus. And Eucharist means give thanks, so give thanks. Every meal, remember Jesus, give thanks, 
and ask him to fill you in those next few hours with his Holy Spirit so that he can have full control over your body in those next hours. And then when the next meal comes, do it again. You only have to go four hours for most of you guys. Some of you guys every two, right? And some of you fasters, you go 12 or whatever, right? But that's all I'm talking about here, right? I mean, literally, can you think I can go from four hours to four hours and at the next meal, I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna look at that food and I'm gonna give thanks. And that's what Jesus did. He did it at the Passover. He did it in this story. He gave thanks. That word is Eucharist, give thanks. And somehow that got translated into mystical, magical, woof, it's Jesus's body and blood. Not true. That's not what's happening. What's happening is you're inviting the Holy Spirit in and you're saying, Holy Spirit, fill me now. I'm indwelt by you now. Fill me with your spirit so that I may be the man of God you've called me to be. I may be filled in such a way that you've got complete control of my mind and soul. And that meal you're eating is what you're doing to remind you of that. Jesus said, so when you think about this bread and this cup, remember me. So how will you change the way you pray at every meal this week? I'm suggesting think of it way more differently than you have been. Jesus, thanks for the food. Help it be good. Let me eat fast and get back to work. Amen. Is that really what he's asking you to do at that meal? No, he's not. Jesus, this food is from you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I'm going to take this in and know that as I eat this, you have the power to take the Holy Spirit and well up in me and transform the way I think and the way I feel and the way I act in the next four hours. Please do that now and, let's, and watch what happens. That's a different prayer, isn't it? And what I'm not suggesting is that that somehow transformed your food into the body and blood of Jesus. I'm not saying that at all. And Jesus never recommended that happen and he never said it would. In John 6, 60 through 71, many people abandoned Jesus when they heard his explanation of flesh and blood. They're offended by his words and made no attempt to understand. Jesus did offend many people then, and he's going to continue to do it now. He has every intent of dividing those, listen carefully, who believe from those who are fake believers. There's a difference between a fake believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever is someone that's never heard the name of Jesus. They've never been compelled to be in his presence. A fake believer wanders through the Christian culture but never believes in Jesus, not ever. There's a difference, and Jesus is fighting to divide those. He has every intent to divide. Jesus asked his closest men what they were going to do after the, uh, so many left, and Peter said, to whom shall I go? I've got nowhere else to go. And Peter stayed along with the other 11, and yet Judas one who did not believe also stayed until the end. John makes it crystal clear. The fine line between believers and fake believers is very, very hard to see. And only Jesus knows who those people are, not us. Jesus will test us, every one of us at some point, to help us individually see if God has truly drawn us to him or if we've come only for comfort and personal gain. You will know when the test comes because you've now heard John chapter 6, and it's coming. You will be tested. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. I had a priest tell me when I was 17, Jesus is going to call you one day, Bill, and you're going to know. You will have to decide what you will do. 
That call came on my 29th birthday, and I was on my face crying out to Jesus to save me. Sadly, prior to that day, I had been, (laughs) very few people who knew me would have known I had been saved that night because I had been in the church for years. Mingling in the culture, they would have never known I was unsaved. I knew the lingo. I knew the words. I taught Sunday school. I had all the play down. I, had, I ran it beautifully. You would have never known. I fit right in. It's not hard to do, you guys. And if you have a little extra money, it's real easy to do. Today, I'm absolutely certain there is no one else that I would go to. Jesus is absolutely my Lord, and he's the one that holds the word of life. How will you respond when Jesus convicts you that you may be living as a fake Christian? Let me briefly share a few indicators of a person who does not believe in Jesus. Now, please listen to these, not from an absolute mindset, black and white. Try to listen from the standpoint of, is this God talking to me? Do these point to me? You just want Jesus to give you what you ask for. When you get what you want, you feel happy and never think of Jesus until the next crisis. When life is good, your prayer and Bible time stop. You don't serve others unless you know you'll be seen or affirmed. Your words and communication style change when you get around Christians. You don't think about growing in your faith and don't spend time reading to learn about it. You enjoy your material lifestyle and spend most of your time and money pursuing it. You complain and find every way out of difficulties and trials. When things go wrong, you find other people to blame and never ask Jesus to help you see what you did wrong. You never apologize or ask for forgiveness, and you don't even see those as an option. You never ask God to help you see your own thoughts and behaviors, and you never mourn at how ungodly you are. You get overly anxious when someone sees you make mistakes. You strongly believe things like a wafer and wine are critical to your salvation. You like reading parts of the Bible, but don't spend any time helping anybody. You love giving money when people find out about it. You should have some of these be true as a new believer. You're thinking, man, I'm a new believer. That sounds exactly like me. And that's probably true. But those things diminish as, you're, as you mature in your faith. They do. And as a seasoned believer, many of these should not be true. And just changing those does not fix the problem. So you can try to change your behavior, but it doesn't fix the problem. Ultimate transformation of your heart is the only fix. And that heart transformation can only come from God. And that's what Jesus said. This is a God calling and reaching you. It's an act of God. You have no control over this. Only God can change your behavior. Now, if you feel convicted and yet you're not saved, come forward tonight when we finish and let's talk through your thoughts and feelings tonight. Don't leave without thinking about this. Now, let me encourage you if you're a believer. Here's a list of a few experiences of what true believers look like compared to fake believers. This is powerful. This came from the lesson tonight. Your baptism was very personal. It felt as though you were alone with Jesus And you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you confessed him as Lord. Jesus has invited you to serve and you said yes. And now you're working shoulder to shoulder with him and it feels really good and you're happy serving with him. He lets you help him do miracles and you've seen him and your faith is growing because you've watched him with your own eyes. 
He's given you real provisions when you've needed them and you routinely thank him and you thank others because you know those are gifts from God. He gives you power that you've never had like forgiving people and actually caring and loving for someone. You see your failures and you mourn the depth of the pain you cause others. You fail often and yet you still feel forgiven and accepted. You have a compelling desire to apologize and seek reconciliation. He subdues your fear and you find courage in places where you've never had it before. He connects to you emotionally. You feel him comfort you and affirm you. He sent people to love you when you needed it and you knew those were from him. He gives you spiritual wisdom. You understand the Bible and it gives you peace because you know the truth. His words feed you spiritually and emotionally. The Bible is something that you crave. You don't memorize the Bible to show off, but because you deeply desire to hear God speak, and he does. You don't pray because you think it's the right thing to do. You pray because you need to get aligned with God's heart. You don't serve, uh, uh, you don't serve because the Bible says you should serve. You serve because you're compelled to work with Jesus. You're dying to hang out with him and swing a hammer. You don't go to church because you feel bad if you're going to miss. You go to church because you experience the Holy Spirit filling you during the worship time, and you love being around other believers. When you experience some of these blessings, you should rejoice because it should tell you you are saved you are born again. You're a new creation. You're a man of God. He's changed you. You're different. You are a real believer. That's an exciting thing. If you know you're saved and have not had many of the experiences, then get excited and say, that's coming for me. And it is. The only thing you got to do is get engaged. Get off the shore and get in the boat, right? You got to get in the game. Jesus is providing all you need right now to live a powerful and an incredibly fulfilling life. And you're just spending too much time watching. If you're not sure if you're saved tonight, please don't leave confused. Come up here, talk to me or grab your leader and sit and talk it through and let's work through that with you tonight. The fact that you care means God is drawing you right now, tonight, now. Don't leave without addressing that draw because he's doing it. And guys, when God draws you, he doesn't keep coming back. He comes and he draws. And when you push him away, there's a time when he's going to be a gentleman and say, okay, I'm not going to knock anymore. That doesn't keep happening. And that's a mistake many men believe is that, well, I can pass that up. He'll be back. That's not true. It is not how he works. So don't leave tonight if you don't, if you're not sure we want to make sure that you're not a fake Christian, that you're born again and saved. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. Father, help these guys know we love them. I love them. You love them. Lord, help us draw to you. And Lord, help us be the men of God who experience the work that you've called us to. Help us serve in powerful ways and experience your miracles. Help us give our life to you, Jesus. Total surrender, all in. Lord, help us be those kind of men that follow you fully and saturate our soul. Lord, help our meal prayers change this week so that we beg for you to fill us and control us in every part of our day. Lord, help us love you deeply now. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. 